today on the podcast, we are continuing our series, We Believe, talking about God. I'm so excited to be with you again, and excited to be with you, Pastor Phil. You too, Keith, man. This is going to be a great episode of the podcast. Absolutely. It's been a great weekend, and finally, we've got some fall weather, uh, some cooler temperatures, which I'm excited about, our, our life group I came over Saturday night. We put the Razorback game on uh, outdoor uh, screen and uh, enjoyed that cool fall weather. Uh, and looking forward to a great weekend coming up with the outdoor service. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, after you got done watching that game, did you guys all read one of the Psalms of Lament? <laughs> yeah. It, it was not pretty at all. Uh, but, you know, we had a lot of fun. And, and that's, that's what it's about, right? That's right. Reading the Psalms of Lament between the Razorbacks and the, the Cowboy fans. Oh, yeah. Let, let's. Uh, mm. Sorry to our listeners if that's a sore subject. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's always there's always a uh, up from here, right? Uh, always hope. So it's uh, been a great weekend. And like I said, looking forward to the outdoor service next weekend. Uh, hopefully we'll have some great weather. Hey, but before we get started today, uh, you don't want to, uh, to bypass uh, some things that also happened this weekend. Um, you know, over in the Middle East, and our thoughts and prayers are with uh, all of those affected um, by just this this unspeakable evil. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. It's an ongoing tragedy. Uh, we don't even have all the facts right now, but clearly a massive, uh, well, they, they likened it to the Pearl Harbor or September 11th. It was, it was Israel's version of September 11th. They got completely blindsided uh, by this, and uh, so now they are scrambling to make up for it. I have no doubt that uh, that they're going to respond in a very uh, significant way, as they already are. But yeah, we're we're continuing to pray for God's people over in uh, over in Israel. Yeah, absolutely, and I want to continue to do that in the days ahead. Um, well, this weekend uh, you continued the series we believe with the topic God, and uh, obviously that's a very broad topic. And uh, you spoke uh, several uh, times about uh, the fact that we couldn't cover everything in the message, but just excited to have the opportunity to talk about some more in-depth questions here on the podcast. Um, so let's get started. And uh, the first one was really interesting, uh, Pastor Phil, and that was you mentioned that God's personal name is Yahweh, and you went into um, some specifics about uh, what that means and some alternative spellings and things like that. And um, But you said that that name is particularly special to the Jews, so special that they won't even say it. I was curious, why is it okay uh, for us to use the name if they don't? Well, that's a great question because we did focus on the sacred nature of the name, and God's name is very sacred. I mean, we you know, one of the uh, Ten Commandments, the Third Commandment, you know, you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. But why would there be this, this rigid prohibition on even pronouncing that name? First of all, consider the history of, of the Jewish religion. Okay, So most people know that the, that the nation was carried off into captivity by the Babylons, or excuse me, by the Babylonians to Babylon, you know, after a long series of disobedience to God. God finally said, okay, fine, have it your way. You're going into captivity for 70 years. So when they came out of that captivity, a lot of the Jewish thinkers, which ultimately became the Pharisees and other you know, leading parties of, of, uh, of Judaism, they said, we have to do everything we possibly can to prevent that from happening again. And so what we're going to do is we're going to add all kinds of additional rules and laws to what God has already given us. 
almost like additional safeguards, right? So if, if the guardrail is against the edge of the cliff and God put that there so that we wouldn't drive our car over the cliff, well, what we're going to do is we're going to back that up. We're going to put another guardrail about 20 yards on the other side of the one next to the cliff. So now we're not even getting close to the guardrail. We're just staying about 20 yards away. And then another generation of Jewish leaders came along and they said, no, that's not good enough. Let's add another guardrail. So that really, that was the Judaism that Jesus was coming up against, quite honestly. And this is going a little far afield of our topic, but, but it's very helpful to understand that by the time the first century came around, the, the Jews had added so many additional rules. Initially, it was for a, a good cause. You know, they, they wanted to do whatever they could to keep their people from transgressing the actual things that God said, right? Such as, you shall not do work on the Sabbath, okay? But, but God didn't define that in all the most uh, detailed and nitinoid ways, right? So what the Jewish uh, commentators and rabbis and so forth did is they came along and they said, well, here's all the different ways that we're not going to do work on the Sabbath. Uh, so you couldn't even... You couldn't even carry, if you were a tailor, you couldn't even carry a, um, a needle in your pocket, you know, because it, it, might, it might be, you know, construed as work, right? Okay, so go back to God's name. God specifically said, you shall not take my name in vain, okay? But he didn't give 50,000 rules about exactly what that meant. So what they did is they came in and they added all kinds of additional expectations, and one of those expectations was, you know what, here's, here's, the, here's the deal. One of the ways that we can keep from misusing God's name is just don't even say it at all, right? Now, that, that, that is kind of going to an extreme, but it started out you know, with a good purpose in mind, a good intent in mind. And so that was a principle that they certainly applied to God's name, but they applied that principle to many different things in, in their religion. That's why, by the way, because by the time Jesus came along, it became more about all of their set of rules rather than what God had initially said. That's why Jesus said, you have a fine way of, and I'm paraphrasing, elevating you know, the, the traditions of men above the commandments of God, hmm. right? So there's nothing legalistically wrong with us saying Yahweh, as long as we're saying it in a way that's reverent and respectful to the Lord, for that matter, using the name of God or the name of Jesus. Or, and I mean, I would say Jesus is the name above every name, right? And there's nothing wrong with saying the name of Jesus, but just think about how people you know, in so many coarse and trashy ways, misuse the name of Jesus. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and thank you so much for clarifying that, uh, because uh, I, I'm sure some, some of our listeners may have uh, had that question uh, listening to that. But, you know, I thought, you know, God wants to have a personal relationship with us. So it, it would seem to reason that we would be able to call him by his name. And so, that's right. Um, but like you said, the appropriate context and with the appropriate level of reverence and respect. Um, so, but knowing God is more than just knowing his name, right? You said that we can know God through his attributes or characteristics as well. Uh, but you talked about it being very important that we see God in terms of all of his attributes and not just one or two of them. Why is that so important? Well, yes, we should definitely see God for who he has revealed himself to be through the scripture, you know, in the totality of the 360 degree revelation of God from, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, so, for example, you know, we mentioned this yesterday. Our culture has a, a bad habit of equating God with nothing but a generic form of love right? God is love. And of course, we did quote 1 John 4, 8 yesterday, where it says in very plain language, God is love. Yes, God is unbelievable. 
matchless, infinite love. And yet, there's a lot more about God that's revealed in the Scripture as well than, than that simply He is loving. Now, what in many cases people are doing is they are basically equating God with love and love with God uh, in order to, to find license to live however they want to, do whatever they want to, because God is love and He just wants everybody to be happy and everyone to be, you know, uh, regardless of what our, our, our moral decisions are, our, our, our ethical uh, framework, it doesn't matter because God is love. It's just, it covers everything, right? So if, if that's a challenge and it is in our culture, then it's important for us as God's people to, to not buy into that, right? To not buy into that hook, line, and sinker. See, yeah, God is love. You know, what, what was it? The Rob Bell book that came out a few years ago, Love Wins. That, that, that is a classic example of someone turning the volume way up on one of God's attributes, but minimizing many of the other attributes. On the other hand, Keith, I know you came out of a background where, where you know, and, and others in our church, and, and we know many people who come out of a background where churches have made much of the holiness of God to the detriment of the love of God, right? Not to say that those are the only two attributes, but those are the ones that tend to work themselves out the most in our day-to-day living. And of course, you know, what, what does a church look like? I'm asking you, what does a church look like where they have made much of the holiness of God, but they really have not made a big deal about the grace and the love of God. Yeah, um, and so you're exactly right. I grew up in that kind of a church culture that was very legalistic. It was it was about um, following the rules and performing. And as a matter of fact, I just had this conversation with my D group yesterday, um, just how easy it is um, when, when you don't really... Um, you're not really resting in the love of God, that it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm saved by grace, but now I have to do all these things for God to um, get his approval or to not let him down or to be good enough, Um, um, but not realizing that in in Christ, you already have those things. Um, So that's kind of where I grew up, um, is intellectually knowing that, yes, God loves me, but always feeling like if I mess up, that he's just waiting there to to judge, um, and, and knowing that that that's not true, uh, because of Jesus. So, but you know what, here's the thing. I mean, yes, we need to take into account all of God's attributes. And of course, if we're actually reading our Bibles, right, consistently, we're going to be exposed to those attributes. I mean, it's not like we have to go to some, you know, theological ivory tower, some high tower somewhere to tap into God's attributes. All we have to do is get into the word. Again, you mentioned your D group. My D group met last night and we were doing, um, uh, hear journal entries from our readings in the book of Isaiah. And we're, we're in Isaiah chapter 9, <clears throat> and I'm just giving a very practical example here of, of how we apply these things to our lives. So we're in Isaiah chapter 9. I did the verse that says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And, you know, my hear journal was talking about how there is an emphasis on God's people uh, walking in the light. You know, 1 Peter 2, 9, God's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That was the application for me, but then guess what my response was? And I'm being very transparent here, okay? My response was basically, this is my here journal, Family Guy is trash, okay? So, you know, there's a TV show called Family Guy. Not that I watch it, not that I'm a binge watcher or anything, but I certainly saw a few episodes here and there when I was in the Army hanging out with soldiers and so forth. And yes, there are some things in that show that, that will give you a little chuckle, you know, they're a little, little humorous. But the fact is, the show is absolute trash, and in my reels... You know, when you get on Facebook, get on social media, and they just pop up all these different reels. And if a reel pops up for Family Guy, it only shows you a few seconds. 
but it just it reminds me and, and is there a temptation from time to time to click on that and just say oh what are they talking about sure right so my here journal with with an emphasis on the holiness of god even as we said yesterday in our message first peter 1 16 uh, since it is written you shall be holy for i am holy okay the response for me, the very practical thing that I took away from my interaction with the scripture in God's holiness was this particular show that occasionally I feel like I want to click on the little reel on my social media, it's trash. It's not, it, it, it's not making me more holy. In fact, it's, it's pulling me further away into filth. So boom, you know, God just gave me that reminder of just how trashy it was in, in comparison to the holiness to which he has called me as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, that's really good. And you know what's interesting, um, just as we're talking about God's love and His holiness and how those things work together, I, I think where we err sometimes, and, and Phil, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that we want to define uh, what those attributes mean. Like, God is love, but we want to define what love is. Um, and I think about just my relationship with my kids, that um, a lot of things that, that I do uh, with them or, or for them is because I love them, but it's not necessarily what they want, right? Uh, sometimes those things are hard uh, because I'm concerned with them becoming, uh, you know, responsible adults um, who love God and, and follow God. And so sometimes there's correction. Sometimes there's things that I ask them to do that they don't want to do. Um, and so, um, yes, I love them, and so I'm doing these things. And I feel like it's that way with God, that we want to define what that love is, and God is like, no, I am love. I get to define that. Is that something that, that you would agree with? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, and that's the thing. We we want to define these things and what they mean. You know, we, we want to use God's, uh, you know, God's dictionary, but our definitions, you know. So, so all that to say, yes, I totally agree with that. And that's why it's important that we have this balanced understanding and take, take into consideration all of what God has revealed to us about himself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we definitely want to learn more about God through his at attributes and, and all these discussions, but uh, you said that there are some things about God that we just can't fully figure out. I um, mean, you gave the example of the Trinity, or another good one is, is you know, Jesus, the incarnation. How could he be fully God and fully man at the same time? Um, what would you say to those who use these concepts um, as examples of inconsistencies or even contradictions uh, to the Christian faith? So I think it's important that we understand the definition when we use the word contradiction. And I think we launched into this a little bit last week, right? People want to throw out, well, these contradictions in the Bible, these contradictions in the Bible. Well, if you understand what a contradiction is, a contradiction is where one statement is specifically saying the other statement is wrong, right? Uh, this is A, this is B, and B says A is specifically wrong. I mean, you, you can have a tension or you can even have uh, you know, perspectives from two different points of view that both describe the same truth just in different ways, you know, that's not contradictory or inconsistent. Now, most evangelical theologians are, are very comfortable using the word either mystery or tension. All right? and, and, and part of that is, is what well, goes back to our theology of the Scripture. The two categories that we use to describe the Scripture is unity and diversity. You know, so you have diversity in the scripture in that you have different different human authors, you have different genre, you have you have different parts of, of the storyline, history, and all the rest. But the unity, of course, is that God wrote a book. So unity and diversity in the Bible is one of those big ticket theological discussion points. And the, the, the truth is that when you when you put it all together, you're gonna have some truths in tension, right? Two truths in tension. 
uh, sovereignty of God, the, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, responsibility of man, you know, that type of thing, right? So when you talk about, uh, you know, th these different things that are potentially in tension, I mean, even think about the Trinity, okay? So uh, each member of the Trinity is fully God. Uh, there is one God, right? And among other things, the things that we mentioned, those are in tension. They're not contradictory, right? Uh, there, there, there's, there's a certain tension. There's a certain mystery there. I have discovered that sometimes people will cling to certain theological systems that seemingly eliminate all tension and, and, and all uh, mystery. For example, you could have the volume turned up so loud on the sovereignty of God that, you yes, you, you, you basically do away with all the tensions, but then you end up with some morally problematic scenarios such as a God who holds people fully accountable for their decisions, even though they weren't really making their decisions of their own, you know, free will or cognizance or whatever, you know, whatever term you want to use. Or on the other hand, you say, God, yeah, God, God is all powerful, but, but he's pretty much allowing people to run amok and do whatever they want. Uh, and, 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 and so that you end up with kind of a, uh, what, what was called 20 years ago, kind of an open theism, you know, where God, God either does not even know the future or he knows the future, but he he is powerless to act and 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 superintend the future. Kind of, you know, just things that don't they don't work out and jive with the scripture. So you've got to make some room for tension. You've got to make some room for mystery uh, within the context of what God has revealed to us about Himself. Yeah, that uh, that's really good. And I I think that, like you said, we some of these things. Um, you just have to trust on faith uh, because it's what the Bible says. Even though that uh, we can't figure it out or understand the full scope of it, and you made the statement in the message that uh, you wouldn't want to uh, to worship a God that you could fully understand. I thought that was really powerful, and I agree with you. Yeah, I've actually got a, a lawyer in my uh, D group, and we were talking last night, and I put it to it in, in, in legal terms. I said, you know. Uh, I heard about a guy who, who was a witness in a court, you know, a, a courtroom, and the guy went to swear him in. He said, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? He goes, no, I don't. He said, why not? He said, because if I knew the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I would be God, right? I mean, no, nobody knows that, except there, there's just some things that God knows that we will never know, certainly this side of, this side of eternity. Yeah, absolutely. So in the message, we move from talking about who God is to what God does. And uh, so you said specifically that God creates uh, is one of the things uh, that he does. And uh, you said that we can know him more through the creation. Um, but why did you say that believing in a literal Adam and Eve is essential, but the age of the earth question is non-essential? All right. Well, th th this is a great a uh, little, little lesson in, in the, the, the paradigm we have that we've mentioned on both Sundays, and certainly it applies to the entire series, and that is unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and charity in all things. Okay, so let's think about the gospel. And, and by the way, when I say the word hermeneutics or hermeneutical, that's basically that's, that's a fancy uh, version of the word interpretation, right? To, 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 uh, to interpret something means to, to read it with a particular hermeneutic. Okay, so... One, one of the principles of hermeneutics with the Bible is that you take the New Testament and the New Testament gets to determine ultimately what the Old Testament is saying, 
right? Because because there, there's there's a progressive revelation there where the 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 apostles, the New Testament writers, they had access to to you know information and 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 a revelation from the Lord that that the Old Testament writers didn't necessarily fully have. Okay, so let's talk about Adam and Eve. Um, Romans chapter five tells us that through Adam or the first Adam, sin entered into the world. Okay. That's, that's not just a, a figure of speech. That, that's not a literary device. Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 5 is making a very specific statement saying that the need for the gospel is based on the fact that sin entered into the world through one man. Okay, So there's a theological argument there. But, but even think about some of the other references to, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, Acts 17 where, where Jesus, excuse me, where, again, where, you know, where the apostle says, uh, you know, through one man. God, God made you know all of the human race, you know that type of thing. So, so first of all, there there is the there is the historical uh, argument because that that was an assumed fact, certainly by the apostles and by Jesus, that Adam and Eve were were the first two literal people. Um, but also there there's the theological importance of of understanding that if you don't have one person through whom sin entered the entire human race, what do you have, right? So that's to me that sounds pretty essential. The, the, the fact that sin came into the world through one man, ultimately through one man and one woman, and and it spread to the entire human race through those first two people who sinned against God. Uh, that's that's totally essential in my book. Again, Romans chapter five. I, I don't have to go any further than that. Uh, in addition to what what Jesus and the apostles even believed historically. Okay, so now let's talk about the age of the earth. So there's nothing in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, certainly in Genesis 1 and 2, that give a very specific truth statement about the age of the earth. Uh, when we say that the age of the earth is probably around 10,000 years old, I mean, you're having to come up with a composite there from genealogies. You're, you're really having to build this whole thing out. Uh, and I'm not saying that's wrong, because even I said yesterday, I, I tend to be a young earth kind of guy, okay, versus you know, billions and billions of years, uh, you know, when you, when you look at the, the, the flood geology and even just the concept of what, what really took place uh, in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood, 6, 7, and 8, uh, and 9, I mean, it wasn't just that it rained a lot more than, than normal. I mean, there, there was a, an entire breaking up of the, of the creation. Uh, most, most creationists do believe that the earth was originally created something along the lines of what, uh, you know, uh, uh, naturalists would call Pangaea, you know, and that the flood, it, it didn't cause continental drift, it caused a continental sprint over a very short period of time. The continents just whoosh. And, and, and so, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why a young earth perspective is, is a legitimate perspective. On the other hand, I, I, could, I could see an option in, in the, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2 where there could potentially be, and there's a few different what I would call evangelical or, or Bible-believing options for people who see us as having, you know, an, an old earth, okay, millions and billions of years old. However, the two things I would say to that is, one, why, why do you insist that it has to be an old earth? Because you're trying to appease all of, all of the people who don't believe in God anyway but argue that the earth is billions and billions of years old? Or are you just trying to, you know, come up with some form of, of Christianity or, or some form of faith that, that just, it seems a little more palatable, maybe so you're not ridiculed. Or the other thing is, okay, fine, if you want to have an old earth, that's that's fine. I mean, again, liberty in the non-essentials, charity in all things. Um, 
but but if, if if someone's if someone claims to be a Christian and their old earth theology or, or or cosmology should I say does not make allowance for a literal Adam and Eve, they've got some tough issues they got to wrestle with. Okay, so that that's where I say it's the essential, and and I could unpack this more. Uh, I've got some diagrams and things that I've used when I've taught this in the past, but all that to say that in a nutshell, that's why I see the difference between uh, Adam and Eve being essential. And, uh, you know, the, the age of the earth being non-essential. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, and um, I, I totally see that. And I, when you're talking about um, Adam and Eve and, and sin coming through the line of Adam, there's so much connected to that. Um, yeah, I think about the birth of Christ and him being virgin born and how important that was. Um, and the Bible references him being born of the seed of woman. Well, woman doesn't have a seed. Uh, that, that, so. That's right. Well, okay, you mentioned the virgin birth. That's another great example, and we're going to talk more about this in the message on the person of Jesus in a couple weeks. But there's there's people who call themselves Christians who would say, well, you know what? I mean, I, I don't think it's necessary to believe that Jesus is virgin born. I mean, after all, you know, it's only mentioned in two of the Gospels. I've heard that, right? Okay, well, you know, well, the, the birth of Jesus is only mentioned in so many Gospels. I mean, so I guess he wasn't born or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you, you see how that goes, but but the idea of saying that, that, the, that the belief in a virgin birth, or really what we're arguing is the virgin conception, right, that, that, that that's not essential. Okay, well then, if Jesus was not born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, and Joseph said, I don't, we never came together, then that means Jesus probably was either a product of some illicit relationship with a young Jewish man that, that Mary had, or perhaps... Uh, she got pregnant because of being raped by a Roman soldier. Well, I'll tell you what, if either of those is true, you don't have a sa- you have a sinning savior, and a sinning savior is nobody's savior. That's why the ver- and again, I don't want to steal the thunder from a few weeks from now, but that's that's why we insist that the virgin conception, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, in addition to the fact that it was prophesied in the scripture, and the Bible says that he was born of a virgin. I mean, if if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with the word of God. But the fact is, you also have a sinning Savior, and that's nobody's Savior. That's why we say that's essential. Yeah, amen. Well, looking forward to that message coming up in just a few weeks. I'm sure that uh, that'll be a really good one. Well, we're almost out of time for today, but uh, we've got one more, and, and this is one of those tensions uh, that you mentioned. And so you said that uh, one of the things that God does is God judges um, and how important that is, that he is a just God, he's holy, and he judges sin. But you also said that he redeems, and he's a redeemer. Um, how can God judge sin but also forgive sin at the same time? Great question, Keith. And yes, absolutely, again, because because of who God is, uh, he does certain things. His attributes and, 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 and who he is always always informs what he does. God judges because he is a holy God. We, we emphatically talked about that yesterday. But also, God loves us so much that he, that he wants to bring, bring us to himself. Well, I mean, I guess God could have said, well, you know what, this whole holiness thing and this whole sin thing, let's just forget all about it and call it all off, and we'll just, let's just have a big galactic group hug, right? I mean, I guess God could have done that, but then again, he would have jettisoned his holiness, jettisoned his righteousness. So because he had certain righteous requirements, and we see this throughout the Bible. I mean, this is, again, God's... God's attributes are seen throughout, they're consistent, and because God had some righteous requirements, then there had to be some, some kind of you know, provision made for sin, and we begin to see that as early as Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and 5, 
all the way through the Old Testament, right? I mean, the the the, the forgiveness is in the blood. Uh, you know, as we've said before, you take the Bible and you cut that book anywhere and it's going to bleed. I mean, it's a story of the blood. Uh, and so there needed to be an atonement for that sin, for our sin, uh, really for the, for the wrath of God. So think about what the Bible says. We, we quoted uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3.18 yesterday that says, uh, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the substitutionary atonement right there. We're going to do a whole message on that, uh, the atonement and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, God sent his son as a payment for our sin. Uh, so, in a sense, God is not overlooking sin uh, because there was a payment made. Uh, but at the same time, God judges and at the same time, he loves us enough to provide a way for us to escape that judgment. That's so good. I am so thankful for the hope of the gospel. Amen. Uh, well, we are out of time for today, but before we go, I want to mention that uh, you mentioned some additional resources in the message yesterday, and so uh, we have put those on our website, crossgate.org resources. Great place to go if uh, people want to dive deeper into the We Believe series. Pastor Phil, thank you so much for your time today and looking forward to the next one. Thanks, Keith. God bless, brother. Thank you for listening to the More and Better Disciples podcast, a ministry of Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. To learn more, join us on our website, crossgate.org.